Hey, good to see you, everybody. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I just, uh, I still kind of have the vision of that baptism in my mind. <laughs> that was just amazing. Uh, I thought Ed Gomes was going under, and if he would have, it would have been viral by two o'clock this afternoon all over America. But man, what a moment. But isn't it cool to see how God is changing the lives of so many in this community through the power of the gospel? It's just amazing. It's just awesome. And to be a part of that, and to be a part of a church that's so uh, intensely focused on preaching the gospel and seeing so many lives changed, it really is quite an honor and a privilege. And it's a privilege, as always, to be able to get up here and speak before you. I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last week or two studying this passage. Uh, and we're, of course, in the middle of this Beyond Belief uh, series, which is a series on the miracles of Jesus. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. So uh, it's, a, it's a fun day. I, uh, I was thinking, you know, this is a perfect sermon series for Super Bowl Sunday because uh, I think about my Dallas Cowboys and I think it's going to take a miracle for them to get to the Super Bowl uh, one day. I, I, uh, I told you before, I've already called and asked for them to be my pallbearers at my funeral so that they can let me down one more time. But uh, it's just a constant struggle. So I always look at Super Bowl Sunday as the first preseason game of the year because uh, I know that uh, we're not in it again. How many Chiefs fans do we have in the room? We have any Chiefs fans? Okay, all seven of you. How about 49ers? Who wants the 49ers? Okay. How many of you really just couldn't care less? Who? <laughs> yeah, you're just going to eat pizza and watch the commercials and wait for the halftime show. But anyway, it is a fun day, and it's always a fun afternoon to just sit by and watch TV. And on a rainy day like today, it is pretty fun. So uh, today I want to talk to you uh, out of Mark chapter 11. So as you turn in your Bibles, I thought that since it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'd do something really special today. I don't wear this watch very often, but this is one of my most prized possessions. This is a very special watch to me because it is a very incredibly uh, valuable uh, brand. This is a Patek Philippe watch. And if you know much about watches, you know that this is one of a very, very rare few watches. This, this company was started in 1839 in Canton of Geneva. And they make so few watches every year that they've literally over the last 180 years made less than 1 million watches. And so this is a Patek Philippe. It's a chronograph with the moon phase. And uh, I looked up what the value of this watch is online because I've had it for several years. I bought it in New York. The value of this watch today is $164,400. And I would be so proud to have this watch if it was a real product for <laughs> I did buy it in New York for $20 from a street vendor. And so it's worth less than $20. <laughs> I wish it was real, but it's not. I do like it though, and believe it or not, it, it really does keep very good time. It's a nice fake, it really is. Uh, but you know, if I was to hold a real Patek Philippe next to this one, you would immediately be able to tell, not visually, but simply by holding a real one next to this one. The, the real one is so much heavier. I've held a real Patek Philippe. About the cheapest one you can find is about 30 grand for a cheapie. And when you hold one of these things, they have a weight to 
to them that is uh, pretty, pretty incredible. Because you see, all the materials that they use for making Patek Philippe watches are the real genuine article. This is stainless steel, maybe not even stainless, <laughs> it's just steel. Um, but a real, a real Patek Philippe would be 18 karat white gold. There would be sapphire crystal on the cover instead of just plastic. And this would be a real alligator strap instead of the vinyl one that's already falling apart on my wrist, you see, because the real deal carries with it a lot of weight and a ton of value. And you know, even though this looks good, truth is, if I was to drop it or bang it up against a wall, the face would probably crack. And like I said, the strap's already falling apart. And you can't tell the difference really until, well, trouble comes. And you know, the way you tell the difference between a hypocrite and authentic believer oftentimes is by how they respond when trouble comes. So I want to talk to you today about the cost of a counterfeit faith. We're going to look at the only miracle of destruction in the ministry of Jesus. And we're talking for the next several weeks about his miracles. This one in particular is the only miracle of destruction. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. It's page 232 if you want to look it up in the Bibles that we've been handing out. And by the way, if you don't have one of those, make sure you pick one up in Main Street as you leave today because it contains all four Gospels. Page 232, you find this story. You look to the bottom of the page, it says about the, the, the fig tree being withered. Um, but before we get to that story, I just want to give you a little picture of the setting that's happening. It is the week of Passover. It is the week of the last week of Jesus' life. He will be crucified that Friday. But this particular story begins on that Sunday morning. Now, you can argue this all day long, but I love uh, what Sir Robert Anderson, the, the, the head of Scotland Yard, many, many years ago, he did this incredible calculation on when the actual crucifixion and when that Palm Sunday day was and all this stuff. And he came to the conclusion that this was on April 6th of 32 AD. I love this little book that he, he wrote. Um, and uh, and it's called The Coming Prince, if you want to download it. It's like 99 cents. But it, his calculations are pretty fascinating. And so I've been reading that book a little bit this week. And so I kind of like to just say it was Sunday morning, April 6, 32 AD. Now, the day before, they've made their way all the way from Jericho, actually the east side of Jericho, all the way up to the mountaintop where Bethany resides on the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. Just a few weeks prior to this, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's kind of popular in town right now, right? Here comes the dead raiser, right? But he's been ministering over there in Jericho. They make this trip, which is 17 miles, up 3,600 feet from the, where Jericho is near the Dead Sea, which is at 1,280 feet below sea level, they travel 17 miles, pretty much straight uphill to the Mount of Olives, which sits at 2,600 feet above sea level, and they're staying in Bethany, and most likely in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so it's the last week, it's the beginning of the week, Sunday morning, and Jesus and his disciples, they go towards Jerusalem. Now they go about one mile to another community called Bethphage, or Bethpage is what I used to say 
say, but this week I found out it's actually pronounced Bethphage, B-E-T-H-P-H-A-G-E. And so they go to this little community, which is only about a mile from where they were staying in Bethany, and they're making their way towards Jerusalem. But on the way, Jesus stops and says, hey, by the way, uh, a couple of you disciples, go over here and go to this little man, right, uh, this little place over here. There's a colt and his mom, a mom donkey, whatever you call a mom donkey, but there's a colt and a mom donkey over there in this barn. I need you to tell the owner of the colt that I need to borrow his colt. And if he asks you why, just tell him because the Lord has use of it, has need of it. And so they go do this, and to their shock, the owner of the colt says, yeah, he can use it. <laughs> okay, so he uses this colt, and you know the very famous story, which is actually a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, the very famous story of Jesus getting on this colt and proceeding downward from Beth Fage into the city of Jerusalem. Now he's got all kinds of people following him. Remember, this is the dude that raised Lazarus from the dead. He just healed a few people on the way up from Jericho, a couple of them, one of them named Bartimaeus, a couple of blind guys. And there's all kinds of people following him. Well, now there's excitement in the air because you see, it's Passover. And there's all kinds of people in town. We'll get to that in a minute. And because there's so many visitors and because there's so much excitement around Jesus, uh, the mob and the crowd begins to just grow in excitement and they begin to proclaim him as Hosanna, as king. Of course, in their minds, they want him to be king so that, they can, that he can rescue them from the oppression of the Roman rule. But it's interesting. He chooses a donkey and not a horse to ride on. Because you see... In times of peace, kings would ride on donkeys. Now, he chooses a donkey to ride into because he's not coming as a, as a king of war. He's coming as the Messiah, and he's about to lay down his life so that people uh, all over the world and throughout history would, ex would, would, ex would experience peace that passes understanding in him. Now, there is coming a day, and you read it in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 19, where he is coming back, and this time he's on a horse. But this first time, he's on a donkey, and he rides into town, and all these people are so excited, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us, right? So he goes into town, and he would pick up the story in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, and Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and the Bible says, so then he looked around at all things, just sort of takes in the whole scene, but the hour was already late. So after this, they go back uphill two miles, back to Bethany, back to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they stay the night. Now, we pick up our story in verse 12 on the following morning. But before we do, I just need to mention very briefly that if you're familiar with your Gospels, this story reads a little different than the story in Matthew. And a lot of people who want to question the authority of Scripture, they say, well, you know, the story of Matthew is way different than the story of Mark, so there's a contradiction in the Bible. Well, I'll be honest with you. The more I read the passage in Matthew, which is found in chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, and the more I read this chapter in Mark 11, I was kind of bothered. Because you see, in Matthew, what happens is Matthew tells the story like this. Jesus goes into the temple, he clears the temple. The next day, they get up and he curses the fig tree and the fig tree immediately dies and he talks to his disciples about the object lessons. Well, in the book of Mark, Mark tells it differently. Mark says, they got up, 
Jesus curses the fig tree, which we're about to read here in a moment. Then they went to a temple. Jesus clears the temple. And then they come back the next morning and they discover that the tree is withered. And then Jesus teaches his object lessons. So they're in different order. And I was struggling with this. I was like, man, now this, which one is right? Which one is right? And then I did some study, read a bunch of uh, commentary on it, and discovered something interesting about how these two authors write their books. You see, Matthew's writing the book of Matthew to the Jewish people. Mark is writing the book of Mark to the Gentile people. Matthew tends to, outside of verses, uh, I mean chapters one through four, tends to write a little more topical in nature. So he'll get on one subject and stay on it, but Mark writes chronologically. So even though they're telling the same story, it's in a little different order because Matthew wants to, to stay on one topic before he goes to the next topic, where Mark, on the other hand, wants to go chronologically and how things actually took place. So is there a contradiction? No, it's a different in writing styles. So with that in mind, let's go to Mark because I kind of prefer the chronologically mindset uh, that the, that, uh, in which he writes. So I chose this passage instead. Same content, both books but this is the book I chose to read from. So, what happens? Well, verse 12, Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, which means house of figs, by the way, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar off a fig tree having leaves. Now, he's hungry because he's fully man. Jesus is fully man. If you were to pinch Jesus on the arm, he would say, ouch, that hurt, because he's fully a man. So he gets hungry. His body functions like every other man. But he's also fully God. And so he sees this fig tree a little ways off, and it has leaves. And so he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it to eat. So when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. I think you should probably underline that little phrase, nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard him do it. Now what's happening here? Is Jesus just hangry? I mean, I don't think so. Now, they're staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And if you've read anything about Martha, you know that there's a good chance when those disciples got out of bed that morning, she already had a massive breakfast spread ready for them. You know, minus the bacon, because they were Jewish. They're not going to do that. But she probably had all kinds of hummus and all kinds of stuff laid out. Jesus didn't eat any of it. Because as was his custom, he was probably up really early, fasting and praying. And he knows full well this is the last week of his life. So he's hungry, and it's about mid-morning now, and they're going to make their way towards Jerusalem. They've got a two-mile walk, and he's got a long day ahead of him, and he gets to this tree, and he curses it, and his disciples hear him do it. Now, a few things about this. First of all, Jesus already knows that it, that, that whether or not the tree has any fruit on it, right? I mean, he's all-knowing. He knows ahead of time whether this tree has any fruit on it. Secondly, if Jesus wanted food from it, he could have produced it, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't just know everything, like, for instance, the colt that nobody knew about, but he knew that colt was there to walk on the, uh, to ride the, or the day before. But he's also all-powerful. I mean, this is the same Savior who just a little while ago fed 5,000 men alone 
with five loaves and two fish. You think he could probably produce a little bit of figs on a fig tree if he wanted to? Absolutely. So he's already demonstrated over the last three years that he has power over nature, that he has power over supernatural forces. Remember, he's released demons out of many lives. And he has power over mankind when he so chooses. That tree was all leaves and no fruit, and he knows it ahead of time. And let me tell you a little bit about about, about fig trees now, because in that part of the world, typically uh, fig trees produce leaves on their branches around March or April. Well, fig trees are very interesting trees because they're one of the few kinds of trees that bears fruit before the leaves grow, all right? So these kinds of uh, figs that Jesus would have been looking for on this tree are not the typical figs that you would pluck from the tree at times of harvest. And believe it or not, fig trees produce two different crops per year. The first one comes around June. The second crop comes around August or early fall. Well, it's April 6th, or actually now it's April 7th, right? So the tree has leaves on it, but it would not have had the figs as we know them. Instead, what would have been on this little tree, had it had any fruit, was these little buds that are about the size of almonds called tuquash. It's pronounced tuquash, but it's T-A-Q-S-H. These are little buds that kind of live next to the branches, and people would pluck these off of the trees and eat them kind of like almonds as a little snack. Well, that's the fruit that Jesus is referring to when he sees this tree with all leaves and no tuquash. So it gives this appearance of being healthy and fruit-bearing, but in reality, it's not healthy at all. In Texas, they would say it like this. Oh, he's got a big hat, but no cattle. In Virginia, we just say, oh, they're all talk, but no walk. So Jesus is using this tree as an object lesson for the disciples, and he's going to teach them those lessons here in just a moment. But one thing you need to be aware of is that multiple times in the Old Testament, God refers to his people as the figs of a fig tree. Now, with that in mind, and now that he's cursed this tree, what happens next? Well, they make their way to Jerusalem. Verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who had bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not even allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he began to teach them, saying, it, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. By the way, that's two different quotes from two different passages in the Old Testament. When he says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 56. When he says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers or a den of thieves, he's quoting Daniel chapter 9. And so he's quoting right from the Old Testament what he's doing. But here's the... Can you just picture this moment? By the way, this is the second time he's done this. He did this at the beginning of his ministry. Now he's come back in the last week of his life, and he's doing it again. Why is he doing this? Is he just having a temple tantrum? (laughs) I worked hard on that. No. No, there's a reason behind this. But before we get to the reason, let's just picture the setting. It's Jerusalem. It's Passover week. Do you realize that during Passover week that they would, the, the, the population of Jerusalem would multiply times five times? People from all over the country, other countries would join in this celebration of the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, man, I wish I had time to explain it to you. But read the book of Exodus. 
And you'll realize that the Passover is this celebration that when God delivered the people of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians, and they would kill a goat or a lamb, and they'd put the blood over the doors, the doorways, you know. And then they would have this very, very special meal. Well, this is, this is what God told them to celebrate every year. To this day, they still celebrate the Passover, right? And according to the historian Josephus, at one particular Passover that he attended, over 256,000 goats and lambs were slaughtered in the Jewish court that week alone. Well, the Jewish, had a, the Jewish leaders had a limit of one lamb per 10 people. So if you're slaughtering one lamb per 10 people and you slaughter 256,000 lambs in one week, then that means that the population in the city at that time is over 2.5 million people. There's people everywhere. So that's Jerusalem, but now you look at the temple. The temple had become a place of hypocrisy and blasphemy. And what's happening is Jesus walks in and he begins to turn over these tables of the money changers and he begins to kick people out. And the verse says that he didn't even allow people to walk through because you see, when you have the temple, and this is a good model of it, this gate right here towards the bottom of the screen, that's the, that's the golden gate. And, and, and what you would do is you would enter the golden gate from the east side, this is the east side, so it's almost like we're standing at the Mount of Olives looking westward. They would walk in from that east side, and the further you move your way into the temple, which by the way, see the tall part of that temple? That was over 15 stories tall. This is a massive structure. They would walk in from the east, and the further west you go, the more holy of the place you enter, all right? If you don't mind, uh, uh, Michael, go back to that other photo real quick. So they would enter that uh, golden gate, and you see all the area around the outsides, surrounded by those columns, that was marble flooring. Herod had redone the temple. This is from Herod who built this, and, uh, and he started in 19 BC. It took, took eight years to build, and it only stood for 80 years. But anyway, he goes in, you go in that gate, and that entire outer area is called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was in that court that Annas, the former high priest, had created this thing called Annas's Bazaar. And what they would do is they would have all their money-changing temple, uh, their money-changing tables out there, and they would have all these goats and lambs, and they would be selling them. And if you were a Jewish person in that day, you would make your way for Passover to the temple, and you might have your own goat, and you might have your own lamb, and that's what you want to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord for Passover. But you would be checked at the gate, and they would have priests there who would examine your little animal. And if your animal had any, any, any flaw whatsoever, you were not allowed to, to sacrifice that animal according to Scripture. Well, here's what would happen. The priest would look at those animals, and guess what? Nobody ever had a good animal. So they would say, oh, sorry, this one has a flaw. You're going to have to buy one of ours who've been pre-checked. And guess what? They're 10 times the cost of a normal goat. So they were using these people and extorting money from them like crazy. And then the very poor would come in and, you know, they, they weren't able to afford a lamb or a goat, so they would buy a dove. In fact, you see Jesus' parents doing that. They, they buy a dove. Well, the problem is in their, in their day and age, in that culture, their currency, a dove was worth about a nickel to you and me. And they were charging over $4 for a dove. It's like going to the movies <laughs> to get a, you know, the, the, the movie's $7, but the, the, a Coke and a popcorn's 90 
It's like going to Disney World and getting a fast pass. I, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but we, we did this one time for the little haunted house night with our kids, you know, and, we're, and, and, and we find out that the lines are going to be so stinking long that we, I'm like, well, I guess we should get the fast pass. So we go get in li- another line to get a fast pass, right? When we get to the front of the line, the lady goes, oh, that'll be $450 for four. And I, I did exactly what you did, except I was... Wh- I completely lost it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I completely lost my testimony. I went crazy on this woman. This poor girl, she, she, she didn't set the price. She's just working. I went nuts. I went, I said, what? Are you kidding me? We got people coming from all over the world to come to this place and you're going to try. Ugh. And so I stormed out. I was like, I'm not doing it. I stormed out. My wife was so embarrassed. She was horrified. And <laughs> And my wife looks at the lady behind the desk and she goes, I am so sorry. And the lady goes, oh, it's okay. All the dads do that. (laughs) It's a true story. (laughs) But that's what's happening in this Gentile court. They're literally just robbing these poor people. They're just robbing them. And so Jesus walks in and he knows all this is happening. And he says, no, no, no. And he starts tearing things up. Now, y'all, think about it. There's thousands of people walking around this court of Gentiles, and one man is ripping the place apart. And guess what? Nobody stops him. You know, sometimes I see these little pictures of Jesus, and he looks like some mamby-pamby little wimpy. Let me tell you something. Jesus was a man among men. He was, he was absolutely powerful. And he has the power of God all over him. And when he starts tearing this place up, nobody even dares stop him. Nobody dares. He even won't let people walk through. Do you see that little, that golden gate? When you walk through the gate and you walk around the court of Gentiles, the rest of the city is right there. But what you don't see in this picture is that all along the wall to the southern side is nothing but straight down mountain. And it is quite a long ways to walk around that temple. So people would cut through. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You're not cutting through here. This is the house of God. And you guys have made a mockery of this thing. So he's angry. And he drives them out with righteous anger. And he's making the point with these religious leaders and the people of Israel that things are not right spiritually or politically in this country. There's trouble at the heart of the nation. And so he drives them out as a sign of things to come. The Pharisees are panicked. They can't believe this guy. He's smarter than them. He's more influential than them. The crowd's behind him. So they begin to plot behind his back. How can we destroy him? So look at verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him. By the way, that word destroy, when you look at it in the Greek, doesn't just mean kill him. It means they want to destroy his reputation. It means they want to convince the people that he's not who he says he is. Because they feared him. And all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. So he goes back to Bethany. And now it's Tuesday morning. And they're walking past the same tree that Jesus cursed the morning before. Verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering what happened the morning before, says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. 
<laughs> it's almost like the disciples are more interested in how he did it than in why he did it. But Jesus sort of ignores that and he goes straight to the why. And he begins to teach the disciples why he cursed that tree. And as we close today, I'm going to give you four reasons why he did so. See, Jesus cursed this tree because it was the very picture of the hypocrisy of Israel. It was also a picture of the hypocrisy of the priests and the Pharisees. They were all talk, but no walk. Their hearts were hardened. Their souls were lost. Their God had become money. Jesus cursed the fig tree because Israel had lost its faith. Therefore, they were not worshiping God properly, which led to their hypocritical religiosity, energized by their own personal greed, and empowered by their sinful leaders. They were counterfeits. So Jesus performs this miracle of destruction, not just as a response to the tree not having fruit, but also as a prophecy of what was certain to come for the nation of Israel and the temple. And sure enough, just 40 years later, in 70 AD, that temple, every stone of it, would come crashing down at the hand of the Roman Empire under Emperor Titus. And you know what? When that happened, the Romans exiled the Jews from their own nation. And it wouldn't be until 1948 that the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, would once again become its own state, its own nation. That's why when something happens like October 7th this last fall and the Jewish nation, the Israelites, respond the way they do, you shouldn't be surprised. I mean... They've only been back in their own land for less than 100 years. They're going to protect this with every ounce of blood that they have, and well should they. So you have this going on, and the disciples are wondering, what on earth? Why? How? And then Jesus responds in a very curious way. Peter says, hey, look, the tree you cursed, it's withering away. And Jesus, rather than going, yeah, I did this because of this, he just looks at Peter and he says this, have faith in God. Uh, okay, what? <laughs> you know, sometimes you have a what moment. Like my wife and I, we've been taking these supplements here lately, and we're supposed to take them at night. It's some new vitamin called lion's mane that's supposed to be real good for you. It's supposed to help you sleep better and all kinds of stuff like that. So we take this, but then my wife's like, yeah, I'm having some weird dreams. And we've been talking a lot about this fig tree story. And the other morning she wakes up and she goes, hey, I had a dream that I was at the cursing of the fig tree. I said, wow, really? She goes, oh, and so was Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift is everywhere these days. But she really did have that dream. So Jesus, it's, it's kind of curious why he responds this way. But let me just close with a few little pointer items that I think will help you as you look at this story. Jesus says, have faith in God. Can I just encourage you, number one, to be a person of faith? Faith is the doorway to really knowing God. So how is cursing a fig tree supposed to teach me about faith? I'll tell you why. Because it is your faith, it is your faith in God that produces fruit in your life, real fruit, not just leaves that give the appearance of a healthy spiritual condition, but real life-giving fruit, 
Not like the counterfeits that Paul mentioned to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says, uh, watch out for those who have a form of godliness but lack the power therein. So, here's a little statement you can write down. Maybe in the margin of your Bible there uh, as we get to that verse. Just write these words. No faith, no fruit. Because when you live by faith and are bearing real fruit in your life, Jesus will use you. And Jesus will bless you according to his plan and his purpose. Look what he says in verse 23. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, he says this mountain because they're standing on one, Mount of Olives. Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, does Jesus really mean that we can just look at a mountain and it moves and casts into the sea? Well, we could try it. Why don't you come out to my place here this afternoon and we'll look over there towards the, towards the peak of otter, uh, the peaks of otter and just say, okay, move. Lord, I believe you. I believe, Jesus, you can do it. Move. Go jump in the sea. Go. How many of y'all believe that the peaks of water will probably still be standing there tomorrow? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Can God move mountains like that and cast them into the sea? (laughs) Absolutely. We're watching it happen in California right now with the mudslides, right? It does happen. But is that what Jesus really means when he says that? Well, what he's doing is he's speaking in hyperbole. And what he's saying is, because believe it or not, in Babylonian days, especially in the Talmud, there was actually a saying that they would use for people of great faith. They would call them mountain movers because because of their faith, because of their strong belief, great things were done in and through them. Can any of you think of somebody in our lifetime who God moved mountains through? I can. You're sitting on one of the mountains. When I came here in 2002, I had the privilege of working for the greatest man I've ever known, Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell believed that God would use him to move a mountain, a big mountain, 5,500 acres worth of mountain. And so he called it Liberty Mountain. And he would walk with his feet together over every acre and pray that God would use him to build the greatest Christian university the world has ever seen or known. And in 1971, Jerry Falwell, along with Dr. Elmer Towns and a few other people of great faith, some of which are sitting in this room, began to go towards and start a Christian university It started with just a few little students with no dorms, no classrooms, no resources, no nothing. And here we now sit, 52 years later, on a mountain that's absolutely been moved by God, not just physically, oh yeah, we've moved a lot of dirt, but also all over the world, the impact that God has done through the faith and the vision of one single individual. But I need to just tell you this morning, and it's so inspiring because every time I walk over there on that campus and I stand in the Vine Center or something and I watch 15,000 people praising the Lord Jesus voluntarily with their hands in the air, I'm just, I'm speechless. And I'm also reminded 
that every bit of this is because of the vision of one individual. And then I look in my own life and I go, oh God, would you use me that way? Make me a person of faith. Faith isn't hard to understand, but it is hard to live by. And that's why Jesus says the next thing that he says. Not only are we supposed to be a person of faith, but also a person of prayer. So faith is the doorway by which we know God, but prayer is the passageway by which we hear God. What did Dr. Falwell say? Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. And Jesus says in verse 24, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, Jesus is not just doing some name it and claim it theology here. And I know we've got some brothers and sisters, maybe even in this room, who have that kind of theology where they believe that, you know, they're destined to be rich just because they want to be rich or whatever it might be. And I've been around these kind of individuals. And I've, I've even called in one or two times because I was watching a show one night and the guy was saying, you know what, if you'll give $100, then God will bless you tenfold with a thousand. So I called in and I simply said, hey, do you really believe this? And they said, yes. I said, okay, well then send me $100. I never got the money. <laughs> Jesus is not talking about just this blab it and grab it, then you can have it theology. But when you read verses like this, you have to take the entire context of his teachings into mind. So you look at John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking again, and he further explains exactly what he means. He says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it where the phrase, in my name, means this, in union with me and my purposes. It's not this guarantee that we're just gonna pray and get whatever we wish. If we did, I'd be praying for a real Pot of Philippe watch worth $164,400. No. You see, because here, believing, once again, means a total dependence on God and union in His will and in his purposes. So when you pray and what you're praying for is within his will and part of his plan and his purpose, oh, absolutely then that prayer is going to come to fruition. So be a person of faith because faith is the doorway in which we know God. Be a person of prayer because prayer is the pathway which way we, in which we hear God. But here's another one. Be a person who forgives why? Because forgiveness is the roadway to freedom with God. I don't know if you've ever been a, in a situation in your life where you had a hard time forgiving somebody. Can I just encourage you? Go ahead and do it. Because when you finally are able to forgive somebody who's wronged you, guess who ends up being more free than anybody else? You. And there's many in this room and the one you have the hardest, hardest time forgiving is not somebody else, but it's yourself. Can I just encourage you this morning to do whatever you have to do to get alone with God and accept the forgiveness that he offers you. First John 1 John 1.9 says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When's the last time you asked God to forgive you of your sins? When's the last time you really accepted that forgiveness? So this, 
this being a person of forgiveness is really a person who not only accepts the forgiveness of God, but also practices the forgiveness of God with anyone and everyone who does you wrong, including yourself. I had a little songwriter friend of mine not long ago, and he he wrote a song, and the tagline of the chorus was simply this, if you want to live, forgive. So be a person of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the roadway to freedom with God. Now let me just close with this. Also, be a person who worships. Because worship, you see, is the gateway to the presence of God. At the very heart of the issue that Jesus has with the temple and the Pharisees and the people of Israel is an issue of worship. Israel has a worship problem. They had replaced the glorious worship of Almighty God with the greedy worship of the Almighty Dollar. Temple worship was no longer about dwelling in God's presence. It was instead about swindling the peasants. There was robbery and racketeering and everything that I told you about. In fact, their worship has completely turned upside down. And it was all under the guise of religion. You know, we all worship someone or something, don't we? God's placed that desire in all of us. And what consumes your mind and your heart is really the object of what you worship. And for many, it's money. For others, it's relationships. Maybe it's an addiction like pornography. But God placed this desire in all of us to worship something or someone, and he did it so that we would actually worship him. In fact, that's the very reason you exist. All things were created by God and for God, and that includes you. You were created to worship God. But your worship must be grounded in faith. And the more you worship, the more your faith grows. And the more your faith in him grows, the more you want to worship him. It's a beautiful cycle of spiritual growth. But if you think there's no consequences to having your worship upside down, then think again. Oh, we worship the Lamb of God, yes, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And even though Jesus is kind and patient and gentle, he's also strong and powerful as we see in this very chapter where he expects his children to be obedient and to worship him. That's the whole reason for the fast, y'all, so that we continue to grow in him and learn what it is to really, really serve him in and through all aspects of our lives. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus, thankfully, gives us the answer, the key to it all, and it's right there in John chapter 15. And if you want to turn there, it's on page 536 of your Bible, and I would encourage you to take a highlighter and highlight this passage because this is the key to it all. And I've preached to you about this multiple times. I'll just remind you of this passage again. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So abide in Jesus. And if you will, and if you do, You'd be surprised how it uses you. So it's up to us. We can allow the things of the world to turn our worship upside down in which we wither away to nothing, bearing no fruit in our lives. 
and it eventually turns us into these casual counterfeit Christians, or we can live authentic, victorious, fruitful lives as children of God. This watch, yeah, it's totally a counterfeit because I have no certificate of authenticity with it, and I never will. But as a believer, your certificate of authenticity is not in what you do or what you look like, but simply in who you are and in whose you are. You were made to worship him. You were handcrafted by the master craftsman to be and to do what he created you to do, both naturally and spiritually. And it's all determined by whether or not, by faith, we abide in Christ. So can I just ask you this morning as we close, what fig tree in your life does God need to kill? What mountain in your life does God want to use you to move? We know that if it's in his will, he certainly has the power. The question is, do you have the faith in him to believe he can? And will you abide in him long enough so that he does? Will you bow your heads with me, please? Are you a person of faith this morning? Have you ever placed your faith in him? He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can change you. Secondly, are you a person of prayer this morning? Do you really believe when you pray to God that he can and will do things through you and in you that are impossible? Are you a person who forgives? You know, he says in that verse that he won't forgive you until you forgive others. Maybe there's somebody in this very room you need to forgive. Maybe you need to go home today and make a phone call and ask for forgiveness. And then seek the forgiveness of God and then learn how to forgive yourself. And then finally, are you a person who worships? Do you worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And I don't mean just singing a few songs on Sunday morning. I mean with a lifestyle that genuinely loves Jesus. He truly is worthy of our praise, you know, as way maker, as mountain mover, as life saver, life giver. So I thought as we close today, we could just sing one verse and one chorus of this little song we've sung around here a long time. It fits really well with this series because he really is a miracle worker. But as we get, begin to sing and as we stand, I just want to remind you that there's pastors all down here at the front. This is an open altar. If you need forgiveness, if you need to be a deeper person of faith, whatever it is you need, we're here for you. Why don't you come, take one of these pastors by the hand and seek prayer, seek the face of God. Let's stand together and we'll close with this little song. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. Working in this place And I worship you I worship you You are here Moving in our midst I worship you I worship you You are here You're working in 
I pray you'll have this little song at the forefront of your heart. Come on, you're the way maker. You're the miracle worker. Way maker, miracle worker, promise keep light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Can we do that one more time? Come on, let me hear you sing it. You're the way maker, miracle worker, promise keep light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. of faith, a person of prayer, a person who forgives, and one who worships him with all that you are. God bless you as you go. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition in your life of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. If you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we would love to chat with you about that. I would encourage you to email us at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. And if you would like to help to contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love, to let them know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again, and through Christ, we have hope.